This message first aired on the radio on December 1st, 2003. Well, we want to turn to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to pass through the first portion of the chapter. We should get ourselves a good ways in to this doctrinal section. We really begun with Romans 5. Romans breaks down into segments better than many of the epistles because it is a doctrinal treatise. That is to say, the book of Romans has a characteristic about it that is particularly revealing. It is a place to, in the area of Scripture where it is placed as the first of epistles to seven different churches or groups of churches, and it's importantly placed there. The anatomy of the Scriptures as given to us when the Lord spoke again after his resurrection, commonly referred to as the New Testament, has a very pleasing anatomy to it, a very reasoned anatomy to it. As we take the gospel accounts and distill them through the book of Acts as the Christian faith is established as a transition, and it's a transitionary movement that we see, and the gospel accounts show the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ by Israel, the belief in him by some of the remnant, seed truths which are placed there, to be enlarged upon after the Lord Jesus Christ sends another comforter who would lead his apostles and disciples into all truth. That did happen, and we do have all truth. There's no truth that we don't have. Then those gospel accounts are distilled through the book of Acts as the church which is his body begins to emerge, and we see the church at Jerusalem, which is a Jewish church. We see the failure of that church in the book of Acts. Then we come, as the Apostle says, uh, he'll take the Word of God to the Gentiles. We see his ministry as the Apostle of the Gentiles becoming prominent and preeminent over the other ministry of the other Apostles. And then we have here the book of Romans kicking off a series of nine epistles, which are well-read in order, and we hope, by the grace of God, to teach through them in order. And it begins with this doctrinal layout of this doctrinal treatise of the book of Romans. And this doctrine is set forth powerfully. When you read the book of Romans, and it's good to just try to read it all at once, it can take you 45 minutes, you read it aloud. If you have a hard time concentrating, and many of us do, especially in something thick, that is something very tightly woven like the book of Romans, read it aloud. If you have trouble reading aloud, find a tape. Find the reading of Alexander Scorby, then get a King James Version. You want to read along in the version that it's read in. And while the Bible is being read aloud, read along with it. If you know somebody that reads well aloud, uh, invite them over. Ask them to read the Bible with you out loud. Just read it. And certain impressions will come upon you, not only concerning the content of the book of Romans, but also the personality of the apostle will come through. And you'll find that God created this instrument, this amanuensis, that is this pen in his own hand, that he created the apostle for the purpose for which he purposed him, including the writing of the scriptures of truth, the 14 epistles that he wrote, or that I think he wrote, 13 that we're sure he wrote in the book of Hebrews. Well, one other thing that comes out then about the Apostle is the brilliance, I might say the brilliance of his mind, really the fullness of how the Word of God was in his mind. And one has called this the effulgence of his great mind, and 
Uh, certainly we see that as the Apostle Paul walks us through these great thoughts. And uh, I do think that we at least touched on a few of those great thoughts in Romans chapter 5. Concludes with that, As sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. And so we saw that whole reverse analogy, the complex structure of Romans 5, so not as the offense also is the free gift. And we saw the reverse analogy of how sin was visited upon the race, and anyone who is in Adam is therefore a sinner. Nothing you can do about that. You're born that way. So it is with Christ. All are made righteous who are born in him. Marvel not, therefore, as the Lord told Nicodemus, that you must be born from above. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's that's the wonderful truth. And it's the essential truth of the faith principle upon which we stand. And we do stand that salvation comes by faith only in Christ only. And that's the faith principle. And now he's going to elucidate how that faith principle operates, especially because he introduces the fact that when we're born from above, we have a new nature. And I want to say this is introductory, and this is much of what the uh, scriptures later will occupy themselves with as we pass through these nine epistles to seven churches or groups of churches. But the wonderful truth articulated, perhaps summarized better in Second Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There is a new nature that is given or born in the believer. And what we're going to do is read about that, and we're going to read about how the faith principle actually works here in Romans chapter 6. And we're going to see about the vicarious death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't worry, that's a 25-cent Bible word, vicarious. And we'll explain what we mean by that as we go through here. But we're on our way to understanding how the faith principle is laid down in chapter 5, how the believer has the new nature in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 7, we're going to see the problem that despite we have a new nature, we still have an old one, and we'll see the two natures in conflict there. And then in Romans 8, we'll see our final triumphant destiny as the new nature gains ascendancy over the old, and we'll see some things that are a little more complicated. We might say things that differ. We're going to see some things about our general airship and our specific potential airship in Christ Jesus, and we'll see those things that are certain to us and some of those things that are not certain, and so we'll be able to distinguish the gift of God, which is eternal life, and those things attaching to it, and also something of the prize of God. Now, after the apostle lays out for us that just as sin reigned unto death, grace reigns through righteousness all the way unto eternal life, and so he points out that there is grace where sin abounded, grace much more abounded, or grace super abounded over sin. And so we have now the faith principle includes the super abounding grace of God into the life conquering sin. That is, where sin was, grace overcomes. And so one can immediately begin to think this way, say, well, the more sin there is, the more grace there is. 
Well, that's true enough. Because where sin abounds, grace superabounds. This ties back to the principle, the Lord Jesus, who says, one who's forgiven much loves much. And now the natural mind, the unregenerate mind, may begin to reason errantly. And, of course, one of the things that the book of Romans is for is to correct our errant reasoning. In fact, it takes the reasonings of men, as we traced out early in the epistle, and puts them to shame, and it notes the arrogant boasting of men. So the carnal reasoning, or the natural reasoning, faulty reasoning, would then come up with this first verse of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Now, of course, this thought emanates from a problem of the independent and dependent variable. That is to say this. When we begin to see grace superabounding over sin, we may begin to think that sin is the cause of grace. And that's just not true. God is the cause of grace. We do not find the grace of God in the sinner. We find God's grace in God. In God. And the sinner is helpless and helped by God. So the sinner cannot help himself either in the matter of salvation from sin and the penalty of sin, nor can the sinner help himself in the matter of acquiring grace. Grace is not something that is purchased or earned by the sinner. Grace is something given by God, and it's given through the principle of faith. And, of course, hear this thought, what shall we shall we continue in sin in order for grace to, as it were, continue to abound? And the answer to that is, that's ridiculous. God forbid. It's an errant thought. That phrase, God forbid, or think, really, it could be said to say, God, stop your thinking in this crazy way. This, of course, the enemies of the gospel who emerge in the book of Acts and who come to full flower in the book of Galatians, the enemies of the gospel continually try to slander the preachers of the word of God that because we understand the principle of grace through faith, they slander us who teach such, which is the clear teaching of the scripture, by saying that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Well, their judgment is just. So the scripture says, Romans 3, 4, and here again now, the apostle answers this in a detailed fashion. And here's where we see the new nature, which the old man, the carnal mind, cannot appreciate, cannot comprehend, and really never suspects. So shall we continue in sin? What should we say then? Should we say, well, let's continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. And now the apostle introduces the death of the believer. And let me tell you, it's an overlooked thing, the death of the believer. I've told my wife, I said, you know, one thing you could put on my tombstone, at least he stopped sinning. A dead man, I don't know if dead men pay taxes or not. I'm not here to talk about taxes. But I'll tell you what dead men don't do. Dead men don't sin anymore. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer 
therein. It's a wonderful thought. It's an introductory thought. It's a rhetorical thought. All these questions here at the outset of Romans 6, there's four of them. I'll read them in consecutively here. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many as us were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, those are four questions, and they're all rhetorical. That is to say, they're there in question fashion in order to give us implicit answers. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The answer to that one is obviously not. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And the answer to that is, well, dead people don't live, do they? And third one is, know ye not that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? And the answer is, well, you should know that. And uh, do you not know that? And, of course, we don't know that. So we come back, we'll inspect that, and then we can't say we don't know it anymore. We'll be back after this brief announcement. Well, we need to understand the death of Christ with respect to ourselves. And, of course, the death of Christ, not well understood, or we'd be uh, not in need of teaching of the Romans chapter 6. But here we have now the details, we might say the details, of the substitutionary work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, his vicarious death, resurrection, and even his vicarious ascension into heaven. Now, I use the word vicarious there a couple of times because it's a good old Bible word. And I don't know a better way to say it than to use good old Bible words. But the vicarious death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ is the way of stating his substitutionary work in our behalf. Now, not only did he die, did Jesus Christ die for our sins according to the Scriptures, but lo and behold, we are dead with him. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ's death is our death. His life is our life. Another way to put this is he really, truly did die for our sins, and that this is a real thing. This is not a concept. It is not a concept that Christ died in our place. It is a fact of the faith that Christ died for our sins and in our place. Now the question becomes, okay, so you understand or you've heard that Christ died for your sins. Do you understand it and believe it? Did the just for the unjust? So this now becomes a matter of what we have to reckon in our minds or reason in our minds because faith is reasonable. Faith is something we reckon that we account for. Our faith operates on the facts and accounts things so. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ uh, tried to teach us in seed form, which he told the apostles, you can't hear some of these things now, but when I send the Comforter to you, He'll lead you into all truth, and after his resurrection from the dead, we'll be in a place to understand these things. And one of the problems is that till he actually truly, really died for the sins of his followers, including us, we're in no position to understand what he meant, the, the enormity of his work. Nothing more obvious in the Gospels than that. So now we look back with a new nature, and we'll get to the new nature in a minute. 
but we look back with our new nature and with our further understanding of his completed work, and we look back into the Gospel of John, for example, and we read something a bit better than understood when they first heard him say it. Here we read in John chapter 5, verse 17, this wonderful thought. Jesus answered them, My Father works hitherto, and I work. Now, why did he say that? Well, he used a point of departure to teach them. The Jews persecuted Jesus, and they sought to kill him because he had done miracles on the Sabbath day. And they were of the mind that uh, man was created for the Sabbath, instead of the way it really was, where God created the Sabbath for man. And they had everything backwards. Of course, the Jews got everything backwards. They had it backwards about Abraham and Moses. So, well, God introduced himself to Abraham but brought perfection through Moses. Well, that's totally false. God introduced himself to Abraham and gave him eternal life by and justified Abraham by faith alone without the law. And uh, we don't see any justification in the law. It didn't come from the law. It came to Abraham by promise. This is the argument of Romans 4 and 5. They had that wrong. They had it wrong about, well, the Sabbath followed man, so man was made for the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was made for man. God desired fellowship with man. And so he made a rest for man. Of course, man sinned and messed that up, and when man sinned, God did not continue to rest. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ says in John five seventeen. You Sabbath keepers out there, what's your problem? God's not resting. God's not resting anymore. God rested before man sinned. Well, man sinned. We've got that whole sin deal. So here it says, Jesus answered them, My Father works hitherto, and I work, and I work. Now, I've rested from my own works, but... God didn't rest. My Father works hitherto, and I work. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. My Father is working. He's not resting. And the Lord Jesus Christ is working. What is his work? His work is to die, was to die for our sins. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath in their minds, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. I've just read to you John five sixteen, seventeen, and 18. Then answered Jesus, and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but whatsoever he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also doeth the Son likewise. You want to see what the Father's doing? You just watch the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that the Father is doing. For the Father loved the Son, showed him all things that himself doeth, and he will give him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and makes them alive, even so the Son makes alive whom he will. John chapter 5 and verse 21. You see, the, the Son of God makes alive, raises up the dead. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father, which has sent him. Now, that's just a fact. There is only one way to honor the Father, and that is to honor the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but is past, is already past, as it were. John five twenty four from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, 
when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we hear the word of God, we hear the voice of the Lord, and the dead live. He that believes shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Now back to Romans 6. How does this work out? Well, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When we hear the word of God, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We hear the word of God, we are made alive. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. We have passed through death into life. On what principle? On the principle of faith in Christ. On the faith principle, the only principle that God gives us. That is faith alone in Christ alone. How shall we that are dead live any longer to, to sin? Well, dead men don't sin. And so the apostle now gives the preposterous notion that we that are dead to sin should continue in sin so that grace may abound. That's a preposterous notion. Now, of course, later he's going to deal with the problem, but yes, we do sin. We do sin. But right now he's pointing out the vehicle for grace. And the vehicle for grace is not sin. Sin is not that which brings grace to the life. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2, 6 reads, So walk ye in him. How did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, we didn't receive him by sin. We received him by a faith principle, that is, by faith in his word. And the grace of God came to us, saving us, and that principle maintains. Grace doesn't come by sin. Grace comes by faith in Christ. And that's what this argument is going to be. Now, he says, verse 3, don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ or into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This now brings up the great controversy of baptism. And baptism is not really controversial, friends. Baptism is made controversial by those who desire to take you to a wrong principle. Remember, there's only one principle laid down here. It is the faith principle that we are to follow, faith alone and Christ alone. Now, baptism follows by faith. We're talking here about now, there are those who would say, well, is this spirit baptism or is this water baptism? I'll remind you that that question is already answered in the Scripture because the Christians have, according to Ephesians chapter 4, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. Now, that is not spirit baptism because we have one spirit. The scriptures already say we have one baptism. It is water immersion. Now, I know, in fact, a very good friend of mine and I used to have a controversy here. He said, every time I read Romans 6, I'm as dry as a bone. I do not see any bit of water in Romans 6. And I just point out to him, I said, well, here's baptism. And baptism always has to do here with water, except otherwise qualified. Now you say, well, then what are you saying, that I go into Christ Jesus when I go into water? No, that's not what it says. Baptism is always water, and it's always a figure. It's always a figure. Only pagan notions bring to the mind any idea that somehow, by use of water or by use of ritual or rite, 
something actually happens to the individual. There's only one principle, and that's the faith principle. In the context of the faith principle, baptism stands fairly much alone. It stands with just a few other things as one of Christian symbols. There's not very many Christian symbols. I don't say there's not any Christian symbols. I say there are not many Christian symbols. There are merely four Christian symbols. That's not very many. Four of them. Four only. And, of course, they've been distorted tremendously through the years because of spiritual war and spiritual enmity against the truth. After all, our enemy blinds the minds of those that don't believe. And we all had our living. We all had our thinking. Enemies in our mind, according to our wicked works, when we were under that influence. But now uh, we see our Lord Jesus Christ, our eyes are open, we have a new nature, we understand things, and we have a mere four symbols to remind us of things. And the apostle uses one of them. He uses one that they all understand. Unfortunately, uh, through smoke and mirrors, uh, we've come to where we don't understand. But uh, they all understood baptism. They all understood baptism. Very controversial at their time, but baptism distinguished among the Jews, for example, John's baptism distinguished those who were waiting for the Messiah from those who really weren't. And then, after John was martyred, the last and greatest of the prophets of Israel was murdered, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his disciples, his apostles, continued to baptize. And as the Word of God moved away from nationally from Israel and came to the whole world, we have now Christian baptism, and Christian baptism is still baptism. It's immersion in water, and it's still what it always was. It was a symbol of what the person doing it believed, and is that. But what is it a symbol of? Well, I mentioned that there's four symbols. I might as well articulate the other three. Water baptism is one symbol. The cup that we share at the Lord's Supper along with the loaf that we share are two other symbols. Of course, the great despot has been done to those symbols. We'll look at three symbols when we get over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the other symbol, the, the fourth symbol, is the woman's head covering. A despot done to all of these things. In fact, in my lifetime, Christian women have gone from almost universally covering their head to flaunting their own glory in the assembly of God's people. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I think a woman's hair ought to look good. It's her glory. And I like a woman to look good. I have a good-looking wife. She has nice-looking hair. She's a nice-looking woman. But when we're in the assembly of God's people, she covers her glory, so my glory is covered. And, you know, all my hair, which, of course, you know, I'm very proud of my hairdo, my head is uncovered so that I, being the glory of Jesus Christ, can be seen not only by anyone who comes in, as we do assemble publicly, but uh, also to the angels who attend the assembly of the saints. Here, do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were immersed? Well, we should use the word immersed here. Don't you know whoever is immersed into Christ is immersed into his death? Now, I do not believe that that right puts you into Christ. You are in Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. It is a picture, it is a symbol, and a figure whereby we publicly declare that that's what happened. That's what baptism is. Do you not know why we use water? We use water instead of dirt, because if we actually buried people in dirt, they'd suffocate, and they'd be a corpse, and then they couldn't live a Christian life. So God gave us water to use. So we put them down in the water as if they're buried, and come back up out of the water as if resurrected. 
And, of course, they have already passed through death into life, according to faith. But we can't show that, except I show you my faith with some works. Then you can't know the faith, so baptism is a work. Being a work, it doesn't save. But being a work, it shows faith. So, the apostle, and I've had to spend 15 minutes talking about this, but the apostle latches on to this sanctified uh, rite and symbol in order to explain very thoroughly exactly what the substitutionary vicarious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means. Just that we're going to have to spend a little more time at it, aren't we? Well, stick with us. Listen to this announcement, if you will, and we'll come back and we'll look a little bit more at this substitution stuff that is the stuff and the good stuff of our faith. As we look in Romans 6, we'll see something of how much we owe. Now the figure of baptism raised up for us to consider and to think about. So if you haven't been immersed as a Christian, and I mean immersed in water, well, you need to be. And I know many, especially adults, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, become embarrassed about the following of the Lord in that wonderful rite of baptism and making that public statement of humility, of course, in following another, and making that public statement that I declare myself dead to sin and alive to God. And, of course, uh, then there's additional amount to overcome if you've neglected that for quite some time. But don't let that bother you. Don't let that uh, stop persistent uh, disobedience or ignorance is not a good reason for disobeying or remaining ignorant. In fact, it's I think those are reasons for no longer learning. Ignorance is a good reason to learn, and disobedience is a reason to stop and start obeying. Well, in any case, you'll have to picture a baptism. Of course, uh, we should be seeing baptisms regularly, so this figure comes to us. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And so baptism, a wonderful picture of the inward work that actually happens when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter in, as it were, to his death. Not as it were, we really enter into his death. We are buried with him by baptism. He died, he was buried, and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 articulates how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And this now, the figure of baptism. So that's why First Peter says baptism in figure saves us. It doesn't really save us. It's the figure of our salvation. It saves us in figure. It's a picture of our salvation. And my friends in the Church of Christ do greatly err when they substitute the symbol for the substance. Even my enemies in the Church of Christ do greatly err when they teach that. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And now there's a combination of doctrinal teaching here of the vicarious work of Christ and what it really means to be born again, along with a bit of an exhortation, which is why this section is going to end in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as they who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so here we're seeing sin and we're seeing sin and God placed on other sides. And this, of course, the dual nature of the believer beginning to emerge. 
Why should we live according to the old nature when we have this new nature? Isn't that inconsistent? Don't you reckon it so as you think about it? Isn't it inconsistent with your baptism? that you declared yourself by baptism to be dead to sin and alive to God, in fact. When you said you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his death was your death, and his life is your life, and that he substituted for you the just for the unjust, you also actually are declaring that my old man is dead, and I left it in the water, as it were. This, of course, is a symbol. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection out from among the dead, even so we should walk in newness of life. And, of course, we should walk in newness of life because we have newness of life. And that's a wonderful thing, this idea of newness. We have this newness, newness of life. And, of course, when it says we are buried with him, the book of Romans here is going to do a lot of this with, this co. We are co-dead, so we are co-alive. And then we get to Romans A, we're going to see where we ought to co-suffer, because if we co-suffer, we'll co-reign. And so we now see here the co-death. Christ's death is a co-death. It's a death for others. It's a vicarious death that others really enter into by faith. He said we should walk in newness of life and not live a life of sin. That's not how grace abounds. Grace abounds because we can now walk in newness of life. And you'll see the grace of God in the newness of my life, not in the excesses of my sin. That's what he's saying. Now we have Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been planted together... Here's another together, planted together in the likeness of death. And so now we see, and we hearken back to what the Lord Jesus Christ said, except a corn of wheat die, it doesn't bring forth fruit. And, of course, the way that a kernel of wheat dies is it's planted, and it brings forth life from death. And so here it says we have been planted together with him, as it is one word here, planted together. We have been planted together in the likeness of his death, in the likeness of his death. Now, we don't actually die. We're planted together in the likeness of his death, his death, not not our own death. We don't get planted when we die. We get planted in his death when we believe in him and his finished work. And so let me assure you, my friend, that faith in Christ alone is faith in his work alone. That's what it is. We have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Or, as we have been planted together with him, we will also resurrect, knowing that our old man is crucified with or co-crucified. So now the introduction here is the old man. We have the newness referenced, and then we have the old man. This harkens back. Oh, there'll be more scripture about it in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesians, but this is introductory now. He summed up what's actually happened. He summed up that old nature, and he calls it the old man. Our old man is co-crucified. That is to say, he nailed up that nature of sin. It is nailed up with him in the cross. So in the work of Christ, we see his work for us. And that's why we have peace with God. We see his 
actual work for us. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he means his work for us is finished. Just as God said, everything was very good at the end of his creation. So the Lord Jesus Christ said the same thing when he said it is finished as he died in our place on the cross. And the full meaning of what that is partially laid out here. We've been planted together in the likeness of his death. We will be also in his resurrection, knowing that our old man is crucified with him. And now that old man is dead, and we're dragging around a corpse. We'll see that in Romans 7. And the apostle laments the fact that he's got the body of this death that he's dragging around. And, of course, that was a Roman punishment, as that contagion would finally kill the man. They would chain up a man to a dead man. And, of course, the dead man would finally kill the live man. But here we see our old man is co-crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. So it's God's purpose to destroy the body of sin. Not your human body. That's a Gnostic idea. There's nothing the matter with your human body. Your human body is for God, and it needs to be yielded accordingly. But there is the body of sin just as there is the body of Christ. Now, that's going to be introduced in the book of Ephesians, but we've got introduction coming here. You can't understand Ephesians if you don't understand Romans. And so here we see that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. This is the whole sin complex over which our archenemy presides and to which he has a great appeal in our old nature. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we also believe we shall live with him. That is the great truth of Romans 6, 7. He that is dead is free from sin. We don't continue in sin that grace may abound. The great news of the grace of God is we're free from sin because we can consider ourselves or reckon ourselves or think ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, which will be an exhortation in this book. And how can we think that? Because we know, verse 9, that Christ being raised from the dead doesn't die anymore. Death has no more dominion over him. He conquered sin and death. He conquered death. And so we know, we know that we're free from death. We know we're free from sin, not because we look at anything that we ourselves have done or can do, but because we appreciate the work of Christ means. And what it means is that death has no dominion over him, so sin has no more dominion over us. Well, friends, we don't run out of subject. We just run out of time here. What wonderful thoughts these are. And we'll continue in Romans 6. By the grace of God, tomorrow, won't you stick with it?